Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 109. Welcome back, guys. We had some uh, cool stuff that happened this past week. Yeah, I guess it's cool by, by some people's definition, right? We had Google I.O. And uh, probably more importantly, we still had a, we had our Dub Dub episode, which we didn't actually get to finish everything on. So we're going to touch on that stuff. But uh, what did you guys find most interesting about Google I.O.? Did you watch some of the videos, the keynote and whatnot? Yeah, we uh, Alex and I watched the keynote with the uh, local Google developer group last week. And I think the biggest and most exciting thing for a lot of Android developers is Kotlin is now the, is a officially supported language for Android. So Google's endorsed it. Uh, they're working with the JetBrains team to improve the tooling and, and support for that on Android. So that's kind of a, a big deal. It's kind of like when, uh, Swift was announced, uh, for iOS, uh, Kotlin and Swift have a lot in common. So I think for anybody, uh, who's already kind of embraced Swift learning Kotlin, if they want to also do Android development, wouldn't be a big stretch. Yeah. I watched the keynote and I watched one other video. There is one on getting your build times faster, uh, with Gradle. So if, if any Android developers are listening, I'm sure either they've already seen that video just because that's something that's on top of any Android developers uh, wish list or they probably should watch it because there's some good tips there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've watched several of the videos already and there's some really good content and Google I.O. is more than just Android or um, you know platform development. It covers a lot, a lot of different tools. A big focus is on AI and machine learning, and Google's got a new piece of hardware in the cloud. They call the TPU for uh, doing training and inference for AI. Apparently, can it's significantly faster than any hardware out there for um, for training machine learning solutions. So. Uh, you know, that's now available to everybody or will be available to everybody who you know, wants to use the Google Cloud. Uh, a ton of the videos are focused on Firebase and Google Cloud. And I think that's very relevant to our listeners because it's a fairly comparable alternative to Amazon Web Services. And there's some things that Google does better. Um, there's very little that Amazon does that Google doesn't do now. And many of us are already using those tools, whether you know it or not, you know, with Google acquiring fabric crashlytics and several other tools that we've been using for a while, like Fastlane is now, um, part of that, that team. And will probably end up being rolled into the fabric brand. I, I did see a, a tweet that going forward, uh, Crashlytics will be the recommended Google crash reporter. So that's probably good news. That was one of the things we were worried about when they bought Fabric is what are they going to keep? What are they going to get rid of? Yeah. 
Yeah, I watched the session about that where they had both the they weren't founders of the those two products, but uh, one guy was the founder of Firebase, and the other guy was a like a technical architect or something from Fabric, and then another uh, Google tech uh, what was he like a technical developer kind of thing, high up uh, decision maker, and basically they were just taking questions from the audience about the products and their futures and everything. And that's where they did say that the crash reporter was the preferred, the crash reporter and fabric was the preferred method. And they also talked about different things like what, what's going to happen with the analytics platforms and all that stuff. Right now, really they're just focusing on getting all of the fabric stuff onto Google infrastructure. And at some point, they'll they'll worry about making the two products work together and look good. You know, there'll be a, there'll be some kind of a UI shootout where the Firebase people have to talk to the Fabric people and tell them to make their stuff look like Google stuff or something or other. I think Firebase is still a relatively fresh acquisition as well. So you know, there's Google Cloud, which then looks very different on top of that, or at least I assume it does. So you now have kind of three major products that coexist, but have very different roots and probably a different look and feel. Uh, they're, most of Google's properties all follow that material design. Yeah. Fabric definitely does not follow material design. Right. I think uh, you know, Fabric always went for like kind of over the top, almost skeuomorphic. <laughs> Uh, you know, they spend a lot of time on fancy animations for logging in and things like that. Uh, yeah, so, when you close an issue on a on a crash report, it gives that nice big stamp. Yeah. <laughs> so it's I, satisfying. Yeah, it doesn't work on mobile very well. At the same time, I kind of felt like it it wasn't where I wanted them to spend their time. Like, I like clean, well designed UI, but um, I've there was a lot of effort put into like having your app icon kind of slowly uh, built in while it was analyzing your app. And it's like, that's cool, but what else would well, be cool would be <laughs> streamlining the process or, you know, whatever it is. I thought they, I mean, their, their whole goal is to make it user friendly, a de- yeah. developer tool that was user friendly and, people wanted to use rather than yeah. uh, kind of like what we're experienced, what we experienced with most developer tools, which is like someone did the least possible to get it off the ground and running. So it was kind of nice that they did some of that stuff. Uh, who knows how much time they actually spent on the, on the fancy fade animation or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But. And <laughs> you know, I appreciated that the attention to detail. I just, I think when you look at some of the other tools, like I suspect that, Google Cloud tooling, um, the it's it's more utilitarian. Uh, so I kind of like a n- nice balance between what Fabric is and what Amazon Web Services is. Like, I feel like Amazon Web Services uh, UI is kind of the opposite of intuitive. Like, you know, it's not it's not easy to figure out what to do with with that tooling. 
you know, especially when you start getting into policy and rights management, you have to actually create XML to, to set that stuff up. Um, I haven't used Google Cloud, so I don't know if that's works the same way or if it's got a nice WYSIWYG, but... Um, Oh yeah, it depends like an, on the thing, good balance. the specific part you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but it's a you know a pretty robust service offering, and I think a lot of the the pricing, uh, you know, the paywall is set pretty high, so you can get in, experiment with it, and get a good feel for it before you had to spend money on it. Uh, but I don't think it's the same as like with Parse. I kind of felt like you would outgrow it at a certain at some point in the future. Where the Google Cloud Firebase, it sounds like maybe you can it can grow with you. Uh, the only other thing you know for me that was a takeaway from Google I/O was the Google Assistant. You know they're continuing to invest in that. Um, they're providing tooling for building actions uh both for android and iphone and i i think that was kind of a big announcement that google assistant will be available for the iphone or is already available for iphone and uh so arguably gives siri a little bit of competition uh but right now as far as i know the only siri has the shortcut where you can do the hey or press a press and hold a button to access it where the Google Assistant, you'd have to open the app to make use of it, which to some degree defeats the purpose. I'm going to have to bleep out your hey, Alex. Now I'm going to have to bleep out mine too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you could always you could always have Siri open Google Assistant, so that could be your first command, and then boom, you're in Google Assistant. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the way Echo works, right? With uh, you know certain third-party commands, you have to kind of like get into the context of whatever skills that that you're trying to get into, and then you can, or maybe you prefix all your commands with the name of the skill. No, you actually kind of tell it that you want to do something with that skill set. And same thing with the Google Home device. You'll say like you know, hey, you know, whatever thing. I'm not going to say it so Alex doesn't have to bleep, but uh, you'll say I want to talk to this this skill set thing. So I I think it's interesting that the whole voice assistant thing that market's heating up. Amazon recently released a new Echo Alexa device with a touchscreen. There's rumors that Apple will be releasing a similar product sometime this year. Maybe we'll see it at wwdc but uh it's definitely an area that that google is continuing to invest in i actually pre-ordered that new alexa device and uh i'm, I'm curious about it because for me it, it's actually going to save me some shelf space because a lot of times i'll have the echo sitting in my kitchen and i'll have an ipad right next to it and maybe the ipad's playing some videos or it's showing me a recipe and it'll be nice to actually have that in one device. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Competition's good. If in a few weeks I see that Apple announces theirs, I'll, I might have to cancel my pre-order. I don't know about you guys, but the one thing, like I've been watching the IO keynotes for a couple years 
and every time I'm like, wow, the integration between all their different pieces of hardware that they have that's out there and available in their ecosystem is like, I wish I could do this and this and this in the Apple ecosystem. Like, you have all your Chromecast hooked up to your TV and your you ask your Google Home something and it opens up on the TV. Like, one of my things is, lately is I've been trying to figure out how to make my Apple TV do anything right now via voice commands, and there's not really anything you can do. Uh, so I'm always jealous of that, and I'm always jealous of Google Photos because it always it always just seems like, wow, this is so much cool stuff that they give you, like shared family libraries. Like, that sounds awesome, but it seems like Google's always like, here's all this cool stuff, and Apple's like, yeah, yeah, that stuff's... That stuff's cool, but we don't have anything that's close to that. Apple's always like, yeah, but what about the privacy? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's the big difference between what Google offers and what Apple offers. Like, on the surface, they offer fairly similar things. But I think where Google goes an extra mile is, you know, they tie in that machine learning AI aspect of it, and they try and determine what photos uh, are the good photos, what photos are the best photos to automatically share with certain friends or family members based on policies you set up. And Apple has the memory book or whatever they call it where they try and do something similar, but they don't do the automatic sharing. They do have family albums, but there's not any AI or whatever. I really like the fact that that Google tries to uh, be clever about what photos are good, gets rid of duplicates, get rid of rid of bad photos, but it does also remind me of like, you know, Walmart or whoever, you know, getting photos printed and and Walmart the Walmart employee deciding which photos they should print or not print. <laughs> um, Apple has like you can share manually share photos between a family but i think a sh- the shared library is just like a and maybe like an implementation it's basically just oh yeah it's one it's one of those folders that you can share with a family member and it automatically puts stuff in it but it seems like it integrates them into your library as well it seems like a like it'd be way more nice if if apple would do that but yeah, I, I just feel like they don't have the skills to do that or they don't want to make the privacy compromises, which I, I'm not sure how much of a compromise there is with with what Google's doing now. There's always the, you know, the chance that sometime in the future, Google just like tweaks some knobs here and there and, you know, gives the government some access to image recognition for any single person or whatever. I'm sure they, they could do something like that. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure Apple's going to continue to spend time. They always spend at least some amount of time on photos at any dub dub. So, you know, that's, that's a product feature that's going to continue to evolve. So I suspect we'll see something. And we know that Apple's been hiring AI experts, uh, you know, they've had quite a few postings. So I don't know if that's where the, they're focusing their efforts, 
more than likely they're focusing it on kind of Siri level AI, but uh, they may be doing something similar for photos. Quite often, Google I.O. or DubDub, one or the other, is a foreshadowing of what the other is going to announce. So, we, Oh, yeah. Well, they'll even get out ahead of the other person and announce something yeah. just so that they can. I mean, that may be the, the case. Everyone's been talking about, oh, Apple's Siri in a box or whatever is going to come out. We want to do our new spin. So Amazon did theirs. Google did theirs. It's kind of like when the iPad came out, all these tablets got announced like six months before it. Similar type of deal. Yeah. So, you know, we've said it many times before, but the competition's good. It's driving innovation. You know, so hopefully it'll be more than just new emojis announced. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one other thing that they talked about at Google I.O. was their... Uh, VR and AR stuff that they had going on, which I was somewhat disappointed in, but it's interesting seeing what what they're doing with what Apple's rumored to be doing and kind of seeing what direction everything's headed in. Uh, did you guys have any general thoughts of the VR stuff? or I didn't see all of the VR discussion. I know, that, you know, there's this new dedicated headset. Uh, I didn't see any of the specs on it. I mean, I suspect that that has something to do with the fact that it's only the kind of the high-end phones right now that can support Daydream. Oh, and, and even when you have a phone, VR experience is not nearly at the same quality as a dedicated headset. Yeah, I suspect it's not like 90 frames per second. But I don't know. Like I said, I didn't see the specs. So, I... Well, yeah. So indulge me for a second as I go through the history of mobile VR, because I think it's kind of interesting. But the whole reason we got all this VR stuff coming back was because a couple of people realized that they could take all these uh, small displays that had become super cheap to make and overclock them so that you could, uh, you know, get like higher than 60 frames per second. Uh, and that made you know, virtual reality affordable for consumers. That was, you know, like five, six, seven years ago. Um, and then people started to realize, oh, we can we can do this with our mobile phones that we have. So cardboard came out. Um, and then the next step was uh, for mobile VR was um, Oculus made a deal with Samsung who, who they were buying a bunch of uh, displays from anyways. Hey, can you uh just do some testing and make sure you're for this next phone that comes out that you guys do make sure that it's it's very stable to to you know bump up the refresh rate of the screen cuz cuz that's really the big thing when you're doing VR on a phone or anything that makes you not feel sick is to have you know a much higher frame rate uh that you also need the ability to kind of drive that and there's lots of different ways that people have been trying to get images that come that fast. Um, I think it's interesting that they're partnering with HTC and Lenovo on this headset. You know, HTC obviously has a decent amount of uh, brand recognition with high-end VR headsets. 
Well, yeah. So the so the next step that we needed with like VR and AR headsets was we needed the tracking to not suck. So when you turned your head or moved your head, it would actually feel like you're moving or turning your head. And that and they came out with a standalone headset and they announced some phones that are gonna be able to do basically inside out tracking, which means you don't have any sensors like you would with a a Vive or an Oculus that are tracking you, which is going to be super nice in terms of, you know, setup or being able to move around and stuff. Um, but the even though they have the inside-out tracking, which I basically how that works is they look for certain spots in wherever space you're in, and they can determine which way you're your head is actually moving to give you positional tracking just based on uh, how those markers that they determine move. Um, but Google also has this thing called Project Tango, which we've talked about a similar thing from Kipital is the is the company. They have a, a sensor that people use on iOS that attaches like iPads and they've also started doing some phone stuff with it too but I'm, I was kind of bummed that Google didn't have this this cool sensor that basically can map a whole room and give you like a 3D representation of a room for for some of the more interesting AR things uh, like letting something in virtual space walk around or under or over something that's in your physical space uh, that seems like that's the next logical step, and I'm guessing whenever Apple goes, there's a whole point to all this stuff. Whenever Apple uh, actually gets to their their AR future that they want to release as kind of their next big thing, it that's going to be involved. Where it's you know it's not just virtual reality where you just paint on top of a of some world. It's it's going to be integrated into your world, kind of like. Microsoft's stuff has been doing so far. They're HoloLens. Yeah, I think hopefully hopefully we'll get some of that stuff at DubDub or at least the beginnings of it. Um, I think there's also some rumors that uh, Oculus is going to release a standalone headset as well. And kind of the big difference between what the Vive and Oculus Rift is now is the you don't need the computer and the wires and it makes it uh, more flexible experience. Well, yeah. So Oculus and now Google are the two people who've announced standalone headsets that are kind of like mobile powered standalone headsets that have the inside out tracking and all that stuff. And I was reading some reviews of people who have tried both of them. And, and they said that this Google one is, uh, is only the second one that has actually been able to do the inside out tracking well, uh, as opposed to there's a whole bunch of other people who've announced them, but they've been, I guess, not very good for some reason. But Oculus announced one at their, I think it was at F8, maybe they showed it off um, to, you know, press members, and they did a demo of it on the screen. They're both still just prototypes, so it seems like the standalone headsets where you don't need a computer are coming, but they're not super powerful, so... Right. But it's a it's the step into bringing VR to mainstream. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's 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 definitely like we're on that path. It's coming. We just don't know when it'll be. All right. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's kind of Google I.O. in a nutshell. And there were lots of other things discussed, but those were kind of the things that stood out to us as being relevant to our world. Uh, so, you know, I think that was it for news. Do you guys want to jump back to our DubDub predictions and finish that up from last week? Sounds good. Yeah, let's do it. So one of the things that we don't have to speculate about that much uh, is what's what's we're going to be the new features in Swift 4 uh, because we can see it developing an open source. Uh, there's a website that has this really nice um, kind of preview of all the Swift 4 stuff called Hacking with Swift, and we can put a link in the show notes. Um, but there's some pretty nice-looking stuff coming in Swift 4.0. Have you guys had a chance to dig through this much? I took a quick look through it. The one thing that stood out to me that I'm kind of excited about is the new encoding, decoding for Swift value types. Uh, so we didn't really, we don't really have any solution now like uh, NS coding for value types. So this new uh, proposal gives us the codable protocol and the really interesting thing about this is it's kind of auto magic. So you don't, all you have to do is implement the protocol. You don't have to write a encode decode function and map everything. It'll, it'll do it for you. And they provide a property list and a JSON encoder decoder. So theoretically taking JSON and converting that to value objects is going to be very little code, uh, which could be exciting. I have not seen anything in the spec yet about how you override it or if you need to map like a string value or number value to an enum or, or something like that. So I don't know how you would deal with like value transformers, but hopefully that's going to be in there as well. Sounds like they're doing some wicked reflection to get that to work. Could be. Yeah. Uh, it seems likely. Uh, Kotlin's got this idea of a data class that can eliminate a whole bunch of boiler code like that. It also does like the equals and hash code and all, all that stuff generates all the properties, getters and setters. So I kind of see this as a step in that direction. Um, most likely it is a, some sort of reflection going on perhaps with the encoder decoder, uh, classes. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could easily just as well be a compile time optimization, a compile time like syntax sugar Yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, this is like one area where a tool like Sorcery, where you could put some metadata in your class and generate, or in a protocol perhaps, and generate the implementation from some meta tags. With this, you don't even have to do that. In Android, Java... Uh, there's annotations to say how to map things, and I kind of wish we had that uh, with Swift, but it uh, doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, that would require some decent reflection and custom annotations. Yeah, I feel like Java has, the Java community has really taken to annotations, and if you do like a, a Spring Boot web app, 90% of your code is all annotations. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, that's probably no joke. It's, I mean, there's 
your implementation files, maybe less so, but all your interfaces, you know, you could have like 10 lines of annotations for, for, for a single method. Yeah. So it's, it's nice. Like, uh, Android's got this library called retrofit that will generate all your networking code for you. And object, I think it does object mapping too. So, you know, that's really nice and eliminates a ton of boilerplate code. And it's more of a declarative approach. Um, I, so I'm kind of jealous of that, but at the same time, it's, you know, you end up putting it all in annotations. Everything's moving to GraphQL anyway. <laughs> Someday. I guess that's a good thing. It's, it's something that is actually picking up a bit of steam. It seems to be a much more complicated beast, though, with the client libraries. It's not just making a simple HTTP call, getting back a single JSON thing, and there you go. But, so, so what is it? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it actually is a query language, and then in your back end, you have some kind of product or some kind of code that knows how to tie together all your disparate data sources and then interpret that query language and decide, okay, for this piece of data, I need to go over to say my accounts system. And then on this other piece of data, I need to go over to my inventory system and then I'm going to mash it all together and then send it back to the client. It's nice from the client perspective because you know, two, three, four, five or whatever API calls, can become just one and you just get one nice big payload uh, server side implementation I think would be a little nuts but it is, it is interesting I think in some ways it, it'll help people to or it'll you'll have less API versions that you need to worry about right because unless you're going to delete a field or rename a field you could pretty much your client will just query out what it needs to from the one endpoint and not have to worry about, oh, do I, am I this version of the API and I call this endpoint or, or whatever. So in the long run, it's probably a good thing, but it's, it seems to be a, a bit complicated. So you think Apple's going to be doing any GraphQL stuff, or is that just, you think that's where things are going? I think that's going to be more on the server side and probably the community more yeah. than Apple. It's kind of well, but if they have a client or something like it that, it kind of falls into that proto buffer space. So you know, Apple provided an official Swift proto buffer uh, library, but um, well, I could see the same thing happening here. Yeah, proto buffers is really just the transport layer, right? Right. Uh, from a client perspective, you're stringing together some kind of query string in your URL, passing it off, and getting it back a, a blob of JSON. And as long as you know how to parse that JSON, it's it's really not there's not a lot that's needed on the client side. All right, so it's already there. Boom! Yeah. Apple supports right. GraphQL. Now, if they add, if they add it to CloudKit, no, Apple doesn't support. It, but if they add that kind of thing to CloudKit, oh, the client end. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That actually reminds me of another area of interest from Google I/O that I think is worth noting, and that's. Google announced architecture components for Android. So they've taken a little bit more um, 
responsibility for how to build apps and they provided a view model implementation they also introduced an ORM so you know Apple never or not on Apple Google never had a real ORM for Android so now they've got something kind of like core data uh, you still write SQL but the interesting thing about it and, and the reason I thought of it was it will actually uh, check your SQL for, at at runtime and it generates kind of your queries based on your SQL statement. Is it kind of like a, like a link type ORM query? I'm not API? sure. I I never really um, spend, any, spend any time with Blink. I know I've people say really good things about it. No, they don't. So I don't know how it compares to Link. Well, the ones <laughs> some, <laughs> some Microsoft developers do. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it's it's, it's uh, when you actually write a link provider that you then learn to hate it. So it's it's interesting that they did that. Um, they also introduced this idea of of a live feed uh, that you basically wrap your your objects in that are aware of lifecycle events on Android, and they can kind of update when the data changes and. Um, on Android, there's some challenges with async code and orientation change that you could be in the middle of updating and orientation changes and your activity kind of restarts or you're in a new activity and it gets a little complicated. So they kind of built that in. And, and I, I thought it was interesting that they kind of embraced the view model language and created a view model object uh, to, to go with that. So I don't know if we'll see something similar from Apple. I, I think that would be a good thing if Apple were to provide some functionality there. Uh, there's definitely been talk of on the internet about killing off UI table view and having a more unified API for collections, maybe building on UI collection view. So maybe we'll see some architecture components from Apple that take some of these common problems and makes them easier to deal with i don't know yeah it would be cool i think it would be cool as long as it as long as you know the direction they take makes sense and is so fairly flexible you know with what google did with android there was you know at first i was wondering if like it killed off arcs java and some of these other frameworks uh, but it sounds like they've worked with the rx java team so you can still use Rx with these new architecture components. Um, I could see Apple taking a slightly more opinionated approach if they were to go down that path, but I think a few light architecture components could go a long way. As long as it's not another session about how I make Operation Q spaghetti. Yeah, I think that was an attempt to say, hey, here's... Here's a way you can build a real-world application, but there was a lot of boilerplate code, a lot of work that you had to put in to, to get, even get there. That ideally, you know, it's it's plumbing that most developers probably could. It's probably not the best use of their time. Oh well, yeah, and we've talked about an alternative to that that Apple could provide that's fairly. Uh, 
simple and integrates easily uh, as promises. And we've heard that nothing like that is coming in Swift 4, any yeah. type of new concurrency it's, stuff. It's on the roadmap, the but not, not this year. Yeah, yeah. I'm not expecting anything in that space this year. Um, it definitely is on the roadmap. I think we would see the feature coming. I don't think Apple's going to surprise us with, hey, we added this whole new language feature, set of language features, yeah. um, and we didn't go through the open source process. Surprise. <laughs> no, I, I think it'll be, uh, I, 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 if they were to do anything, I think it would be more of a framework protocol type of approach to here's yeah. some common here's some common scenarios and how to solve them from an architecture standpoint kind of like what they've done with GameKit you know they with GameKit they introduced a whole bunch of framework code and components that make building games a little bit easier and dealing with game logic so i could see them doing something similar for iOS and Mac app architecture, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Yeah, it doesn't seem super likely. Yeah, but one thing also to mention about Swift 4 is that you can actually try this out today. You can download the betas and then point your current version of Xcode at that toolset. And then from there, you're, you're automatically compiling with the new Swift language. Now you can't submit an app that way. You know, Apple doesn't allow you to submit to the app store with beta tools, but you can actually try the code out and see if your current code base is going to require a lot of work to get to Swift 4, or maybe you can see what kind of benefits there are in Swift 4 for your code base. So it's, it's surprisingly easy to do. And in Xcode, it's just a, a dropdown that you select to switch your tooling. And one of the nice things when they do introduce new features is that in Swift is that it's backwards compatible, typically in the sense that you can still build for older versions of iOS with the new language features because mostly it's syntactic sugar or you know, it's syntax rather than compiled code. Well, it's usually bundling the runtime in there. That too, yeah. That's the big one. So... Um, you know, they they are still messing around with strings, so you know, there's some changes there as well. There's a whole string manifesto that you can go out and read and um you know, I don't even wanna really get into that. I'm sure it'll change a few more times before they're happy with it. <laughs> strings are just a pain whenever you take into account Unicode. Unicode and so you know for a while strings were collections and then they weren't now apparently they're collections again yeah I think <laughs> I think so well, like like so you can do yeah. things like reverse on them uh, which is one of the examples in one of the articles that we might have in the show notes well some of the string manipulations if you wanted to like I forget now because it's been a while since I've really worked with some Swift code but you had to call in to get to the actual characters array to to do some of the lower level things that shouldn't have been such a hard thing to do. Yeah, I think um, 
I forget if it's in the manifesto or not, but I think the general idea of what they want to do with string processing is they want the power of Perl without the complexity of the API of Perl. So what? You know, they they want to be able to do all these things with strings and just make it powerful. So doing you know scanning for data and, and you know parsing and pattern matching and all these things they they want to make it a really powerful uh i don't even know what you'd call it and, you know it's it's a class pearl? but um just call it pearl yeah i mean they they want something extremely powerful so um that's not trivial obviously and balancing the power with ease of use is difficult and then like you said you add in unicode and emojis which is just unicode i guess but uh it gets pretty interesting yeah i'm not looking forward to any crazy pearl-esque swift code (laughs) (laughs) no hopefully most of us don't have to write that but um we've certainly done a decent amount of parsing and if you want to you know, kind of look ahead to Swift on the server or Swift as command line tools. And I guess you do kind of need that level of power. To some degree. Even your day-to-day server programmer is not going to be doing a lot of string parsing. No, but if you want to use it as a command line tool, scripting tool, then things get a little more interesting. But it's not that you can't do it today. It's just that it's, few different classes and the API is not as robust as they would like it to be. It still doesn't really match or up to the same level of capabilities as NS string yet. Isn't that weird that we're in some ways we've taken two steps forward but still are one step back from you know stuff that was yesterday's technology in essence. Yeah. Well I think part of it and maybe it was one of you that said this to me, but it's the the idea that that NS string was had multiple concerns it was doing too much so it didn't make sense to port everything over to the swift string um but yeah it it does create some interesting challenges with making code interoperable and it it always feels a little icky when you have to cast to NS string to do an operation on a string that you can't do in a Swift string. Yeah. Well, at that point, you know that your code is not going to be portable across anything that's not on under the Apple ecosystem, such as you know Linux and Android. So uh, that's that's kind of the highlights of Swift four. There's a few other things in there, but uh, you know we kind of leave it up to the listener to go and and uh read up about more there is a somebody created a a nice swift playground that shows off all the new features but you do have to install the the appropriate sdk to get that to work but uh xcode 9 what do you think we'll see in a couple weeks what do we want or what do we think (laughs) (laughs) i think it would be nice to have swift refactoring but i don't expect we'll see it I don't think until we have ABI stability and maybe even a while after that um, before refactoring is back on the table. Man, this makes me so jealous of Android people because 
their new language comes from a company that makes IDEs. So <laughs> they've makes, had all this work. <laughs> they make the best refactoring tools out there. <laughs> yeah, so they've had all that stuff from the beginning with Kotlin. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just super frustrating. It's like, it's 2017 Apple. Yeah. Why can't we refactor stuff? <laughs> you know, it may not be that long before you can program Kotlin on iOS. There is oh, that... I shouldn't have brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is that Kotlin native project. Yeah, they are working on it. It is on their roadmap. So they've got JavaScript support now and where it basically transpiles to JavaScript. But yeah, the uh, Kotlin native, it, the intent is to have it run on Mac and iOS. Yeah, and and natively on Linux and Android. So another thing that would be nice to have in Xcode that I don't think we'll get this year is uh, Swift Package Manager support. Uh, you know, it definitely seems like a natural fit, but right now Swift Package Manager still is is not really all that useful for iOS or macOS development. It's still a little bit more focused on static libraries. I, I want to say that they they may just be short on people who are working on that last time I looked, but I don't think that's one of the things that they talked about being in this next release. But I would be pleasantly surprised if they even gave us something that, that worked that people could kind of rely on in a common way. Yeah. Again, that's a open source driven effort. So uh, I think they've done a better job in recent months updating where things are at, you know, what's on the roadmap. And uh, I think you can go out to the uh, the roadmap and see for yourself and get on the mailing list. I think before it was kind of jumbled up with some of the other things going on. And they did, I do think they lost at least one person on the team. So, uh, you know, it, I, th I think there were some changes there, you know, in personnel, but it's, you know, it sounds like it's still moving forward. It sounds like they're doing good things. It just doesn't sound like uh, it's going to support iOS or frameworks uh, anytime soon. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'm looking at the roadmap right now that would be that they're labeled as beyond Swift four that seem pretty key. Uh, centralized package index would not be there. Um, support for resources like image assets and stuff like that. Yeah, other stuff that seems like they would be pretty key for people to use it. So yeah, I think right now it's probably great if you're doing a command line or or server side Swift project, but it's not so useful um, outside of that. Yeah, so maybe maybe next year. Now, one thing I do think will come up perhaps this year is uh, improvements to source kit extensions. So they. They announced that last year. There's some excitement about that, especially since they kind of killed off uh, Alcatraz, which was the unofficial plugin uh, solution for Xcode. So it, it turned out the source kit extensions just were so limited in what you could do with it. It was a single file, and uh, you know permissions kept you from doing anything terribly interesting. So hopefully this year that will widen up to be a little bit more practical and you could do a lot more interesting things. 
you know, thing, things like you, know, you could have a sorcerer extension built in or, um, you know, somebody could build their own refactoring solution, perhaps. Or there's like, there's an example we found of like, so we were expecting there to be lots of source kit extensions on the app store and there's like one of them out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The one, the one we found was basically you could highlight some objective C code and convert it to swift code. But what you really need is to be able to like paste objective C code into swift or even vice versa, paste swift code into objective C and have it like convert on the fly for you. Like, uh, Google demoed in, and Android Studio and yeah. I/O, uh, but <laughs> yeah, the, there's there's no ability to do that with the current source kit, and I don't know. I'm super pessimistic about about these getting enough uh, abilities to be useful. Just just with the history of Mac sandboxing, yeah, um, and that's that's where these limitations come from is the security aspects and. Le- to some degree, legitimately so. I mean, there were compromised versions of Xcode out there, so now any any code that runs inside of Xcode has to be signed and you know has to go through the official process, official channels to ensure some security and safety. And I think to some degree that's why you're limited to a single file. You know, you can't from an extension you can't see all the files. You can't process a group of files. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I totally get why it's like it is, or why it was in the first release. I, I'm just super pessimistic that they'll think. I feel like Apple is a little bit too far on the safety side for trade-offs. Yeah, with the, with this stuff. But either they'll completely ignore it this year and pretend it never happened, or we'll see some improvements um, that will make it a little bit more viable. They did ask for feedback. They were interested in what developers wanted to do with it. So hopefully, you know, I, th- I think there were a decent number of developers that were vocal about it. Hopefully they were able to take that feedback and, and find some opportunities to really make it valuable. You know, one last thing I wanted to kind of predict, I guess, for Xcode 9 or, or maybe hope for um, something that, again, was at Google I.O. and Android Studio was a network uh, debugging tool, kind of like a Charles proxy, but built into the IDE. And I could see oh, that yeah, being that would be awesome. <laughs> really useful for a lot of developers. Oh, some follow-up on that tool we talked about last week, Cloud Middleman. So on their on their blog, and, and this came out before we released our app our last episode, but we hadn't had a chance to to find it. Uh, but they they recommend that you only so you generate a certificate just like you would in Charles Proxy uh, that says this is the stuff that we can sign with SSL uh, that we can intercept, and they they have a tool on there and where you can say all right only create certificates and only sign for these domains and that's what they recommend that you do if you use their tool. So I, I think that'll that would help uh, with some of the privacy concerns that we had. Obviously, all your unencrypted traffic would still be going through them just like with any VPN. So there's an update on that. So what other what other predictions do we have? So you know Google I/O talked about AR VR. Uh, there's been plenty of hints that Apple's not only interested but has been hiring and developing in that space. Uh, but 
Do either of you think we'll see anything this year at DubDub? I don't know. I We haven't had any kinds of rumors or anything pointing towards it, so I'm not, just not sure. It's probably going more towards their their self-driving car platform. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, imagine you're driving down the road and you know, maybe you need to take over from your self-driving car and you have a heads-up display that's showing you your map directions. You know, that, that's a perfect example of great AR in the field. Or, you know, you can, you know, if you focus on the safety aspect of it, being able to identify, hey, there's a deer up ahead, you know, in <laughs> the road. Paint a target or, on it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to help collision avoidance and, yeah. uh, you know, identifying. Which is not necessarily a, a VR kind of thing or AR, but. Well, it ties yeah. in the AI and then being able to identify something in a heads up display, but. Right. Uh, you know, in terms of like a mobile uh, phone based AR VR solution, and it definitely, Tim Cook has m- said multiple times that he thinks AR is, is probably more interesting than, than VR, but it's probably also more challenging in many ways. Uh, yeah. My, my hunch is that there's enough smoke that we'll, we might get some type of AR framework uh, that maybe you can only use on like an iPhone. Uh, seven plus uh, for now, and then all the rumors of the new iPhones have the side by side, like uh, two two cameras. So that seems like it's a pretty obvious uh, sensor, kind of like uh, Tango or Occipital's sensor. But I mean, the iPhone seven plus already has the 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 two lenses they're just in the wrong orientation so maybe we just get like a rudimentary ar framework where people can mess around and start using the api Uh, another another interesting thing on this front that i noticed uh steve trotten smith who always looks at new releases that come out from apple uh tweeted a new enum for the for the display that basically uh was there you could choose like 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second and there's like an other option that got added in like 10.2 or 10.3 or 10.1 or something like that so i i think we might get something ar related uh that maybe you can just use with limited hardware now but i'm not super confident <laughs> <laughs> oh won't we have to have all new machines to do this kind of thing because even the, the latest MacBook Pro is not really qualified for doing VR. It's not quali- not for Oculus or even the Vive. Is it doesn't really meet the specs. Um, but that's you know to some degree that's more an issue of the implementation than the hardware. Or you know those kind of go hand in hand. Like if they Apple comes up with a better algorithm that requires less graphics power then you know that that becomes less than of an issue but oh well, yeah and an ar probably needs more uh compute power around like figuring out your environment like what you're looking at than vr does where vr is basically it's the equivalent of like a high-end gaming pc 
because you're you're doing the whole scene and that's where most of the power is going is you know making this whole picture that covers the entire screen so i think ar has different uh requirements in terms of what what's where the heavy lifting is than than vr does yeah and some of the ar things that google showed off at google io uh with google lens uh which uh does, oh, that was pretty cool yeah so you know a couple of things that that will do is like translate signs in real time and there's been some apps that could do that for a while uh, but it can also uh, you can be on the street and kind of ties back to google's street view and can pull up a, a review of restaurants and and things like that so you know we could see something like that from apple um i don't you know i don't know if we will but i don't know google's yeah. been working at this for quite some time oh yeah I think you can just hire a few people off the street and even within a couple of years time come up with something that, oh. that is at the level that google's at today right plus at the same time you're tying people's hands with the whole privacy aspect of it so you know it gets even more complicated but um oh yeah there's a whole bunch of different aspects that go into that that specific application that <laughs> I don't see Apple necessarily having, but yeah, Google also announced TensorFlow Lite, uh, which gives you a little bit of that machine learning compute power on a mobile device rather than having to go to the cloud for it. So, and I I definitely agree that Google's way ahead with less constraints, and they they've been training. Their cloud, they've built custom uh, processing units to to do the machine learning in a fraction of the time of current hardware. Oh yeah, they're definitely ahead on the AI front. I'm not yeah. sure the the VR AR front how yeah. far they are. Yeah. Apple just hasn't shown us what they've been working on. But yeah, I kind of I'm, I'm tying AR back to AI machine learning because it. It does kind of require that you have to be able to recognize, you know, what's in the in frame in order to do anything useful with it. Uh, so yeah, there's there's lots kind of, of applications hand for AR, but yeah. So yeah, it's true. But I think that's about all the time we have this week. So why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter, and I'm Sam Corder on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can find the podcast at Shared Inst. Uh, join us in Slack by going to chat.sharedinstance.com and leave us some good reviews in iTunes and some uh, recommends in Overcast. We'll talk to you guys later. All right. See you. Later.